This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a largely undiscovered region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Tucked into the northwest corner of the state, Lake Hartwell Country offers a unique getaway in an uncrowded section of the Appalachian Mountains. Here it rains more than 75 inches a year, creating a verdant rainforest and, as you might expect, a lot of waterfalls. In fact, there are more than a hundred of them. Many can be reached with a short hike. To get to others, you might spend hours walking empty trails or even paddling a kayak. Lake Hartwell Country is truly a land of water. There are three major lakes, including its namesake, Lake Hartwell, which offers 962 miles of shoreline. That's more than the coast of California. It's known for superb fishing and regularly hosts nationally renowned bass fishing tournaments. Then there's the Chattooga River, a federally designated wild and scenic river that Outside Magazine regularly calls out as one of our favorite paddling destinations. It's one of the longest free-flowing rivers in the southeast, and it provides visitors spectacular scenery as it plummets through steep gorges. There are also sandy beaches and quiet stretches for relaxing. Visit LakeHartwellCountry.com now to start planning your adventure to the undiscovered South Carolina mountains. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. If you survive the trauma, you have 15 minutes for your partners to dig you out. And after 15 minutes, your likelihood of survival goes way down. And so I really don't want to get buried and I don't want to have to dig out someone I love or anyone because it's, yeah, it's a lot more difficult than just not getting buried in the first place. I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. It has been a very bad winter for avalanches in the United States. And if your knowledge of them, like mine, comes mostly from James Bond movies, it can seem like they strike at random, killing anyone unlucky enough to be in their path. But avalanches are actually largely predictable. They only occur on certain slopes under certain conditions. The problem is that those slopes and conditions happen to coincide almost perfectly with the most fun skiing, snowboarding, and snowmobiling in the backcountry. In our last episode, we heard from an experienced backcountry skier who went chasing steep powder and barely survived being buried in an avalanche. He was one of the lucky ones. Many avalanches don't have such happy endings. That's something professional ski mountaineer Caroline Gleick knows far too well. Before she ever started skiing in the backcountry, she lost her half-brother to an avalanche. For today's episode, outside contributor Stephanie Joyce speaks with Caroline about how that loss has informed her approach to risk in the mountains and why she thinks it's important for people to speak up when they make a mistake in the backcountry. Maybe like me, you know Caroline from her Instagram. I became one of her 160,000 followers a couple years ago when she was training to climb Everest. 
Her plan at the time was to ski off the top of the world's tallest mountain, which I thought sounded pretty badass. Then, just a few weeks before the trip, she fully tore her ACL. Obviously, the climb was off. Except it wasn't. She still went ahead and did it. And then, afterwards, when she got home to Utah, she got her ACL fixed. Clearly, she's not someone who shies away from challenging herself in the mountains. But she's also someone who understands how dangerous and unpredictable the mountains can be. Caroline grew up in Minnesota, but she spent a lot of time in Utah as a kid with her half-brother, Martin. She was 15 in 2001 when he died in an avalanche near Salt Lake City. He was 38. Martin was almost like an uncle figure in terms of how we related in age. But um, there's just those people in life like that you really connect with. And Martin was that for me. I mean, he taught me how to tie a figure eight knot. And he took me on some of my first days skiing powder at Elta. And so pretty much from like my first ski trips to Utah and seeing Warren Miller and TGR films, I was like, I want to be a pro skier. Like that is my life stream. I think a lot of that inspiration and the love of the mountains and my desire to climb big peaks was from Martin. He was just that first person who introduced me and he always just made me feel included like I belonged there. Caroline was at home in Minnesota when she learned about Martin's death. And at first, she had trouble processing what had happened. I remember I was at a party and I got the call from my parents and I was like, I do not want to go home. I do not want to deal with the situation because it's so heavy and you just want to run from it. And then I think at his memorial service, they had an open casket funeral. And I remember it just didn't look like him. You know, he had a ton of makeup on for his face, but his hands were just black and blue. And I'll never forget the sight of his hands. I mean, they were just crushed. And so... I think some of it started to set in at that point, and then I think a lot of it really started to sink in more when I went with my family to the site where they extracted his body. And I remember Bruce Tremper, the UAC, the Utah Avalanche Center, he was the head forecaster at the time. He was with us, and he walked us there. And when you see this hole that's 10 feet deep, and you see how much heavy snow is out there and how much that must have weighed. I mean, it was a big hole that he was buried under. The avalanche that killed Martin was a super rare kind called a glide avalanche. In glide avalanches, the entire snowpack slides along the ground down the mountain. They're often very large, and unlike most avalanches, they're extremely difficult to predict. Martin was a really smart guy. He really knew a lot about the mountains, and I really respected his level of intelligence. And so for that to happen to him, it just, yeah, it gave me a lot of respect for the power of of nature. My family's very academic, you know, so understanding the scientific part of it is a lot easier than understanding 
the human factors and the decision making that went into it. And I think it was really hard for me to see my dad just go through all the pain and anguish of like, what was he thinking and go between anger and grief. And yeah, it was really, I mean, it still is really heavy and we still miss Martin very much. Yeah, I can imagine. How did his death change your relationship to the mountains? Well, I mean, I still had this childhood dream of becoming a professional skier, but it made my track a lot different, you know, a lot more conservative and cautious and careful. And what I think Bruce, Tremper, and other avalanche professionals describe is that the average backcountry skier, when they begin, they go through a period where they're pretty dangerous and they make somewhat reckless decisions because they're not fully aware of the risk. And so they go through like that honeymoon period with backcountry skiing where they're like, woohoo, this is the best thing ever. And then they have a close call or an accident and then they bring it back. They reel it back in. And for me, what happened, I think, is the opposite, is that I started from this place of knowing this immense hurt. I mean, the ultimate pain of losing a family member and a sibling and experiencing that loss on such an intimate level, it really changed how I started my backcountry career and like how I managed risk. And so I just went from this place of like always envisioning the worst case scenario. And I tiptoed around the backcountry for so many years before I felt confident to go into steeper terrain, probably like 10 years of just tiptoeing around, taking baby steps. I wasn't fully committed to being a backcountry skier. Instead, Caroline pursued her goal of being a professional skier, mostly at the resort. She appeared in advertisements and magazines as a ski model. But even though she wasn't spending a lot of time in the backcountry during those years, she always had it in the back of her mind. Putting in all that time of skiing in bounds and becoming a really good downhill skier, it made it a lot easier to think about managing risk in a backcountry setting. That's another thing I try to tell people who want to become good backcountry skiers is like, don't shy away from honing your skills in bounds because you can just get into so much more terrain and you can get a sense of it. I did a really good training one day a long, long time ago with Dean Cummings at Snowbird. And he just taught me a lot about like how to ski big lines from island of safety to island of safety. And we did this at the resort. But having that really good understanding of terrain, every day I'd drive up the canyon, I would look for signs of recent avalanches and I would pay attention to how the snow was on my windshield and was it heavy, was it light, like how did it feel, how are the winds, like it became a part of me. And so I wouldn't have wanted to skip that step, that 10-year step (laughs) (laughs) of just being like a sponge, you know, and just absorbing it in before I had this big tick list of goals. The first big project that put Caroline on the map as a professional athlete was skiing all 90 steeps detailed in the Shooting Gallery, a guidebook to ski mountaineering in Utah's Wasatch Range. It was an impressive feat. Only four people have ever completed all of the descents. But for Caroline, it involved an extra hurdle. One of the lines she had to ski in order to complete the project was the line that killed her half-brother. For those first 10 years after he was killed, every time I would drive up Big Cottonwood Canyon, I would drive by Stairs Gulch and I would just feel a lump in my throat. 
I mean, I would feel like physically ill. Um, and so I believe it was 15 years after he died when I skied it. And I don't think I could have done it any sooner. I was still really nervous, you know, picked a really low avalanche. I mean, lo low risk doesn't mean no risk. But, um, you know, I called my some of my friends at the Utah Avalanche Center who are forecasters and they were like, yeah, I think it would be a good day. So the skiing wasn't great, but it was super safe for avalanches. And so the morning of it was me and my partner and a photographer, videographer, and then one other athlete. And it was just one of the most beautiful mornings that I've ever seen in the Wasatch. And when we got to the top, I really felt a sense of peace and I felt like it was the right time to do it. And it was a part of my grieving process. For me, like I'm still grieving. It's like been so long and those wounds, they don't really, it's always like a scar. But I felt like he was stoked that I was there and that I was doing it and I was keeping his memory alive. And to me, like, I think that's one of the best things we can do to remember people we love that we've lost is to honor and celebrate their lives. You know, if I passed, I don't want people to forget me. Like I want my life to have mattered. And so for me, like Martin's life mattered and like going up there and doing that, it was a way to keep his spirit alive. At the top of the episode, we talked about Lake Hartwell country, a largely undiscovered region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. This is a place blessed with unique geography, unlike most spots along the Appalachian chain, which have gently sloping mountains. Here, the elevation plunges more than 2,000 feet in less than half a mile. The result is the Blue Ridge Escarpment, a dramatic feature that the Cherokee tribes in the area gave a special name. That's the Blue Wall, as translated by Garfield Long Jr., a tribal linguist with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. The Blue Wall can be seen from all corners of Lake Hartwell country. But get up close and you'll find an exceptional ecosystem known as the Jocassee Gorges. This is one of the most remote areas on the East Coast, with more than 40,000 acres of protected wilderness, two state parks, and a vast network of hiking trails. Here you can find black bear, bald eagles, peregrine falcons, and dozens of rare plants. The water cascading down these slopes makes its way to Lake Jocassee, one of the top scuba diving destinations in the Southeast, thanks to its crystal clear waters. Start planning your adventure to Lake Hartwell Country and the undiscovered South Carolina mountains at lakehartwellcountry.com. On January 7th this year, Caroline posted a video to Instagram from a popular area for backcountry skiing near Salt Lake City. Okay, we were out for a ski today and unintentionally triggered a pretty big avalanche behind me. We are all safe. No one was buried, but it really got my heart racing. Caroline was out that day with her husband, Rob Lee, and a photographer, Adam Clark. 
The avalanche danger was rated as considerable for steep north-facing slopes because of a persistent weak layer buried deep in the snowpack. The group knew that, so they were headed to some lower-angle terrain to ski. They were still on the approach, with their climbing skins attached to their skis, when they passed underneath a steep north-facing bowl. Adam and I had skied the bowl before that we were looking up at, and it's like, it's a really good place to find good powder snow when the avalanche danger is safer. Rob was ahead, Adam and I were behind, and I remember like, looking at the bowl and saying to Adam, like, I wish I could, I wish we could ski that. Like, it looks so good. I mean, knowing that we weren't and we couldn't. And as I said that and we were looking up, Rob skied down this little slope on the skin track. And then we we didn't hear anything. And we looked up and the face just started to like crack into pieces. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like starts just as one little crack. And then you see it's actually these humongous chunks, like this whole wall of snow hundreds of feet wide right in front of us started coming down and Adam yelled avalanche and he ran up to like this little high point and I started to run down and away and Rob ran the other way and when I was running away I like fell into this little hole and I was just like praying that I was far enough away and that I wasn't going to get buried at the toe of the avalanche but I couldn't see at that point and so it was a pretty slow moving slide but it was massive and luckily it stopped away from us, but just barely. I mean, it covered up part of our skin track five feet deep. And was that was that the first time that you had been that close to being buried in an avalanche? Yeah, because usually when I trigger avalanches, they're intentional and I trigger them from the top. A lot of times before you ski a steep line, you'll try to get the couloir to flush. Right. So you'll stand at the top and try to get it to go, which sounds really dangerous, but it's it's... Not when you know what you're doing. And when you trigger an avalanche from the top, you're in a much safer position because like you never want to be in the debris, like at the bottom of the debris pile, like that's where you get buried incredibly deep. And so um, when I've seen avalanches go in the past, I've always been at the top and I've never been too worried about being buried. Yeah, but to think that I could have been buried like five feet deep, that was terrifying. And to be in just like skins and a really lightweight shirt without a helmet, like I felt very vulnerable and very exposed. And so what did you do after after you realized, okay, we're all okay, nobody's been buried? Yeah, it took a, like a minute or two for it to stop. And there wasn't like a lot of, you know, sometimes you see a lot of like powder or smoke kind of, but it wasn't like that. It was uh, big blocks, like three, four foot deep blocks on the right side. And then on the left side of the avalanche, all the snow piled up like on the skin track in this little terrain trap. Um, Luckily, none of us were buried. We were all fine. But it really caught us off guard because it was triggered from so far away. Like Rob was probably two or 300 feet away from where the crown started. And so I just didn't really expect to be able to remotely trigger such a massive avalanche. And then once we figured that we were relatively safe, we took a few photos and we talked a little bit about what we wanted to do. And then we kept touring to go ski something else. You did. And how did you decide what was safe after that? I mean, again, we were not in avalanche terrain. Like we were below it. And so 
we looked at the maps and we were like, I think we can get to this area and we will not be traveling underneath or adjacent to any other avalanche slopes to get to this other area. So we felt good to keep going and to make some little wiggles on some low, low angle powder in another area. When they got home, Rob wrote up a report about the slide and submitted it to the Utah Avalanche Center. And Caroline posted her video to Instagram with a long caption. In it, she said that they had made mistakes in route planning and communication. And she asked people to be compassionate in their comments so that others will speak up when they have close calls. That information has to be shared right away in order to have the greatest benefit to the most people. My half-sister, Martin's sister, was like, she commented on my post and she's like, I can't like this. Like, it's too traumatic. And I felt really bad. On the other hand, I think it's super important to share those experiences and um, to put it out there. If I could share something that could potentially save someone's life, like, I feel like a moral responsibility to do that. Yeah. Obviously, the next day, someone died in an avalanche pretty close by. I wonder how many people... Uh, maybe didn't go into the backcountry because of your post. I I hope that it, I hope, I mean, it got a lot of views and it had a big reach. And so social media is just a great tool for sharing information like that. And I just, that's like the kind of culture that I want to help change. You know, it's one where people speak really openly and honestly about that stuff. The persistent weak layer is just such a difficult thing for people to wrap their minds around because you can see like a hundred tracks on a slope. I mean, there have even been cases where the resort has opened a slope and then it's avalanched inbounds. It's like the kind of season where I would consider wearing my avalanche beacon inbounds. Yeah. Across the Rocky Mountain West, I think that's probably true this winter. Um, that it's a good it's a good winter to be wearing your beacon inbounds. I know. I even wear mine like driving up the canyon sometimes in case my car gets buried. Like I always think about this weird stuff, but I don't think it's that weird because it's just one of these things that we try to control or we try to outsmart, but there's no outsmarting it or controlling it. It's just super random and you can just get unlucky. And I really want to stack the odds in my favor. Yeah. I mean, there is obviously, though, a certain amount of it that is just pure luck. So, like, how do you think about risk management in a, in a world where some of it is not up to you? Yeah. Like, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time skiing in bounds, and I didn't take a lot of risks out of bounds. And then now that I'm older, I don't ski in the backcountry as much as I used to. I mean, I run a lot and I skate ski and I cross train. I ride my trainer some days for my workouts. And so I think that's one way that you can, you know, if it is like Russian roulette, it's one way that you can try to help mitigate some of the risks. Like you don't have to be out there that much. So I'm not out there like I used to be. And sometimes it breaks my heart and I get the worst FOMO. But um, if you want to have a long career of doing this for the rest of your life, like it's good to also have other ways to train. Right now, with the pandemic, there's been a lot more people heading out into the backcountry. I asked Caroline, what's the one thing she hopes people are thinking about as they do that? I hope that uh, people who have questions or that don't agree with the group will just speak up and voice that stuff all the time. I think that's the probably the biggest thing is just ask questions like 
ask questions constantly before the tour, at the tour, after the tour. Like you can really help prevent a lot of mistakes from spiraling by being the person who's just always asking questions. Yeah, don't go with the flow and don't be afraid to be like the rebellious one <laughs> or to feel like you're the difficult one. Like having the difficult one, like that saves lives. Because when you look at avalanche accidents, it's not, it's usually not people who didn't have the training or the knowledge. It's usually the human factors. And so to be really familiar with the human factors, I definitely take more risk when I'm skiing with my GoPro on or when the camera's rolling. So you have to be really, we used to call it when I started Kodak Courage because everything was shot on film when I started my ski career. <laughs> so you got to be aware of the Kodak Courage. It's, it's wild now. Like everyone has their cell phones out all the time and everyone's rolling with their 360 video and you really have to be careful because that changes risk immensely. Think about how your actions are going to look if you die. Like how will that accident report read? You know, like and... That's like your legacy, you know? That's gonna be like a lesson in avalanche classes. And so how do you want that to look? Yeah, one of the things I always think about going out into the backcountry is like, what would I have to tell their loved ones or their friends? Totally, yeah. If you had to call someone's parents and tell them that they died, like, think about that. I mean, that's kind of grim, but that's the reality. But when you tour a lot, and you ski a lot, it's easy to get complacent. And I think that's another thing we're seeing. It's like, we're all worried about like all these new people, but I think actually a lot of people who've been out in the backcountry for a long time should also be worried because it's super easy to get complacent when you're very familiar with snowpack and terrain. And a lot of avalanche accidents we see are very experienced teams, expert, expert level making poor decisions. Mm-hmm. The blessing of what happened on January 7th for us is that it was a good wake up call. Like, okay, maybe I was like stepping out a little bit and now I will definitely not be skiing in terrain that is adjacent to or underneath any steeper avalanche terrain. Um, it definitely made me take a step back for sure, which is really good. This episode was produced by Stephanie Joyce and edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. Caroline Gleick has a podcast of her own called The Caroline Gleick Show. Earlier this winter, she did a series of episodes about avalanche safety called Stories from the Skin Track. In the first one, she interviews Bruce Tremper, the Utah Avalanche Center forecaster, who took Caroline's family to the spot where Martin died in 2001. It's well worth a listen. This episode was brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a largely undiscovered region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Visit lakehartwellcountry.com to start planning your trip now.